0: students who are home for Thanksgiving, we want to welcome you back. It's so good to see you. I know you're glad that midterms are over and that everything's going well and you get to be home and and eat a great meal. Now when we thought about this idea of of what it would look like for us to raise money for our local food consortium uh, we thought worst case scenario we're sitting up here today with three bags of groceries and uh, I just want to tell you how grateful I am for your generosity. Uh, over $3,000 was given so that we could buy food today. And at the end of the service today, we're gonna gather around and we're gonna pray a Thanksgiving meal prayer over all of this food. And that's how we'll be concluding today. But uh, I, I did notice when I came in this morning, did you see the cross made in the <laughs> can in the, in the middle there? So even we, can, we can even make stew look holy. Is that, is that not just great? That is so neat. I also have, have discovered in the first service this morning, I've got to be very, very careful so that I don't start a chain reaction of knocking the wrong thing over at the wrong time. Uh, I'm so glad you're here today. And for those of you that today may be the first day that you've been here, we have been uh, embarking on a series for the last seven weeks. It's called Seize the Moment, where we as a church have been challenged to not just sit back and wait for God to do something, but to stand up in the power and the direction of the Lord and begin to open doors so that we can see His power work through us. Uh, today, I want to title this message, Leave a Mark, Leave a Mark. Over the past several weeks, we, we started this about talking about what's the, the difference in a minute and a moment. We, we have so many minutes that we live in life, but when we step into them and we make choices that we're going to make a minute, a moment. We we make a choice and in that there is momentum that begins to be developed. We have looked at this passage of Scripture that we're going to be examining today and looked at two people who were living in the same minute but made vastly different choices. One of them had created great momentum for the children of Israel. The other crawled under a tree to go to sleep out of fear. And we recognize that we who are God's people can make choices that propel us in momentum for what God wants to accomplish. As we've unwrapped the the levels of this particular story in First Samuel chapter 14, we've understood that there's an initiative that is required, that God is calling His church to not just sit back and do nothing, but get up and do something, that there's great things that we can accomplish. Pastor Jeff preached on pushing through the uncertain times of our lives, moments where we're not sure what's going on, but we do know that we feel the the prompting of the Spirit to be involved, and as we do that, we face uncertainty, and rather than stopping there, moving through that, I had an opportunity to speak about influence, the influence that Jonathan had in the life of his armor bearer when he in the middle of the night says you know what we're not going to just sit here and be defeated come on let's get up and let's go and see what God is up to and recognizing that what we breathe in we breathe out an influence and so be careful what we breathe in so that we can influence people in the right way. We understand that momentum and opportunity come when we take off the camouflage of who we are. So many times we as Christians have wanted to just hide in the background so that nobody would see us. But it's time for us to take off the camouflage and step into a world and say, Here I am and here here is whose I am and I will work and walk on his behalf and do things that will bring pleasure to him. And then last week I understand that Pastor Pablo was walking around here with a squirt gun. And somehow I was able to use that in a way that made it sound holy to squirt people. Uh, But it was, you go until you hear a no. So many times we sit back and we wait for God to do something, and he is waiting for us to get up and do something, which leads us into this point today about leaving a mark. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we approach your word today over these next few moments that you will lead us and guide our thoughts that if there's anybody that is hesitant to know you, that today would be the day that they would open the door of their heart to you so that you can enter in and they can experience the joy of having their sins forgiven, being made brand new and walking a new joy. And Father, for the church today, this message is really to us about taking up the challenge of working hard and entering into all that you have for us. And I pray that you would lead us that way. In Jesus' name, amen. A number of years ago, I was leading a youth retreat. It was actually a preachers' kids retreat, and it was in the middle of January. And we thought it might be fun if we took a bunch of us and went to a paintball park and spent an afternoon playing paintball. Have any of you ever done that? Just any of you? There's hands. Way more people have played paintball than I thought. Um, So we had a bunch of people that signed up, and we went. And when we called the facility and we asked them, "Is there anything going on? Can we get in?" They said, "Man, it's wide open." So we went there. And as we got there, the instructor took us and basically divided us into two teams that they thought might be equal and basically told us that the way we do this, it's, it's like capture the flag. They have a flag on each side of the field, and you're trying to capture the flag of the enemy without being shot with a paintball gun that leaves a splat all over you. And so uh, we quickly and our teams put on our, our goggles, our helmets, our chest protectors, I thought when I started that game that that was going to be enough protection. Uh, I quickly learned that there are still vulnerable places to be hit. Uh, But we discovered that there's really two ways to play this game. Um, There was a number of obstacles on this field, big obstacles that you could get behind. And you literally could play defense and find a big obstacle and never move. Just the determination is, I'm not going to get shot and I'm not shooting. And I'm not going anywhere. I'm just going to plant myself here and not move. The other other way to play this game is to play it very offensively. Whereas a team, you you, you say, we're going to put different people in harm's way. And whenever there's an attack, we will attack them. And we're going to move our way through this field so that we can actually capture the flag. Now, I was on the aggressive team. I know that surprises all of you. And as I was sneaking around one of the barriers, there was a young man that was bent over, and he's looking around the barrier the other way, and as he did, I recognized that there was a spot where his jacket and shirt lifted up, and there was bare skin. And so, being the kind human being that I am, I aimed right for it. (laughs) And I shot him. Now, here's what we later discovered. There's a reason that paintball places don't get used in the middle of January, because paintballs freeze. And so we thought it was a God's blessing that there would be nobody there. We walked out of that place with little pock marks all over our body. I had to call the father of the individual that I shot and I said, listen, your child is coming home and they've got a massive bruise right in the small of their back. And I just want you to know I did it. And I was thinking of you and all the things they've gotten away with through their life that I know you would have done the same thing. And just thought that that would be an appropriate way. Um, and we walked out of there, and, and for days, I literally had one that broke the skin on my hand as it opened and ripped my hand. we're walking out of there, and have any of you ever heard the, the, the statement, well, that's going to leave a mark? That's the way we walked out of there that day. We all had marks all over us. As I was thinking about that, I am convinced that the Church of Jesus Christ was created not to play defense, not to sit and hide behind the obstacles, hoping that nobody will see us and hoping that somehow we will just be ignored. But I'm convinced that we are to move in the power and the presence of the Lord with such force that everything we do will leave a mark, that the enemy will know that he has been defeated when we are done, because we will leave a mark. If you have your Bibles, turn, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 14. And I want to read verses 8 through 15. And for those of you that may be just joining in, I would encourage you to go to the website so that you can hear the rest of the sermon series that leads up to this because we've been unpeeling this a few verses at a time. But beginning with verse 8, it says, Jonathan said, Come on then, and we will cross over toward them and let them see us. If they say to us, Wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up, because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, the Philistines said, the Hebrews are crawling out of their holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor-bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor-bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor-bearer killed some 20 men in an area about the size of half an acre. Then panic struck the whole army. Those in the camp and field, and those in the outposts and the raiding parties. The ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. What we have been discussing for the past several weeks is this most divine moments must be seized, they don't just happen. How many times have you asked God to open a door and his response to you has been, Would you get up and just look around? There are doors all around you just waiting for you to open it and to enter in. Why don't you just get up and do something rather than sitting there waiting for me to do something for you? We've discussed that some of life's greatest opportunities require us to take the initiative to stand up and to start moving. And they will also require genuine effort. In fact, some of those opportunities will require hard work and sweat. Our religious integration of Christianity today mixed with capitalism and mixed with consumerism has resulted in a view of life that many people have embraced that says this. If God is really in it, then it'll all be easy. If God is in this, then he's going to go before me and he's going to straighten the road and it will be easy. If God is in it, then he's going to go and knock down all the obstacles and we will just march behind him without having to work very hard. And we'll just march into victory because God does all the work and all we do is walk. I want you to know that is not a biblical view. Because what happens is that there will always be times when as you are marching in the will of the Lord, you will face inevitably difficult times. And in that moment, we either assume or conclude that we have made a wrong choice or that we begin to blame God for not doing His job while we are on His conquest. I've become convinced over the years that the most important moments to seize... The most important opportunities are the ones that will not come easily, but are worth the effort. They may begin easy enough. And you're going to hear this morning in a testimony near the end of the message about something that's taking place that our church is going to be involved with. And they may begin easy enough, but oftentimes as you are walking in that conquest, they will become more complex and they will become more difficult. In fact, we recognize even in this passage of Scripture that Jonathan and his armor-bearer were walking in the middle of a valley that was surrounded by cliffs on both sides that we have talked about in past weeks. And as they are in the middle of exposing themselves and vulnerable, becoming in a place of great danger, that is when they said, Now, Lord, here's what we need from you. If they invite us to come up, then we will know you gave them into our hands. If they tell us to stay well where we are, We will recognize that whatever we face, we will stand together and we will face it courageously even if it costs us our life. And when the enemy yells from the top, of course they're not going to climb down the cliffs and go to them. They're going to say, you come up here so that we can teach you a lesson. Jonathan steps out and says, that's the word from the Lord. But I want you to notice that the scripture clearly indicates to us that Jonathan and his armor bearer had to use their own hands and their own feet to climb up the cliff just to be able to go into a battle. It wasn't that the cliff disappeared. It wasn't that everything became easy. I don't know who carried the armor and who carried the sword, but it was not an easy climb. But God instructed them that they needed to put forth the effort and the sweat and the hard work and that victory would only come after they climbed the cliff to get there. So, it shouldn't surprise us that giving ourselves to great things comes with a cost. After all, if divine moments were easy to seize, everybody would be living the abundant life of which Jesus spoke. In your bulletin, there's a couple of points that I would like to point out to you this morning. It's available for you to jot down some notes if you'd like. The first point is this I want you to look where all this took place, it was behind the enemy lines. Samuel told us that Jonathan had received his sign from God. He climbed up using his hands and his feet with his armor-bearer right behind him. He went on to tell us that the Philistines fell before Jonathan. In the first attack, in other words, the first battle was not the last one. Did you notice that? Sometimes we think that when we get involved in conflict, oh, Lord, I want you to win this, but sometimes in order to accomplish things for God, there are going to be multiple levels of conflict that need to be gotten through. In the first attack, the record is that they killed 20 men in an area of about a half an acre of land. Now, I was thinking about that, and you take our sanctuary and our foyer, that's probably about a half an acre. So there was a battle that took place where 20 men died in about this space. And I want you to know something, this was real war. This was not a metaphor, but it was a battle with real blood and real wounds and real pain and real suffering and real death. And in this particular situation, it was a war between the Israelites and the Philistines. God was establishing for himself the people through whom he would invite the nations to himself. And the Philistines had expressed both an idolatry and an immorality that God would not allow Israel to assimilate or embrace. And so in this first encounter alone, Jonathan's army of he and his armor-bearer, the two of them together, We're outnumbered 20 to 1, and we're outnumbered 20 swords to 1. But God led them to a battle and led them to victory. I've often thought about this as I have spent some time in studying this particular passage, that whatever faith Jonathan might have had at that moment, it moved from theory to practice pretty quick. Here's one of the things that I believe that the church, especially the American church, has to deal with today. We are dealing in a, in a world where, frankly, we have life pretty easy. There's not much that we can't get our hands on. And as a result of that, we proclaim to the world that we are people of faith. And it's pretty easy to live a faith life when everything that we need is around. When I speak to people in different parts of the world that don't have things as easy as us, it's a different word that means something different to them to live by faith. But this is the faith that we have lived by. I do believe, however, that when the church decides to go on conquest, when we decide to step out of our comfort zone and begin to say yes to opportunity rather than finding reasons to say no, that we step into a conflict where our faith no longer is one that we just get to think about it as a theory, but we have to begin to put it into practice. It becomes something that we then have to live and use and depend on when we understand that as we step into conquest, that we are against an enemy that desires to take us out. So Jonathan understood a basic reality. You cannot be a people of conquest if you're unwilling to enter the battle. Jesus tells us in John 17, 16, listen, we're not of this world. We are working and living and and conquering a world that is not our home. We are guests here. We're pilgrims. We're traveling through. And Jesus said, just as I am not of this world, you are not of this world. So we understand that as guests in this world, as travelers, that we are here with a task that God desires us to live. So you can talk all day about what God has promised to do through his people. But you will never live in those promises until you take a step to get up and begin to act on them. And if you act on the promises of God, if you choose to seize divine moments, it will eventually happen. There will come a moment of impact when you will have an opportunity to leave a mark, when your insistence will meet the world's resistance. And in that moment, we stand back and say, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. This might be Very well the moment, however, that you begin to ask yourself questions like this. What am I doing? How many of you have walked in obedience to the Lord thinking that because you were walking in obedience, it was going to be easy only to discover that it wasn't? Any of you felt that? One of my my greatest concerns as your pastor is I'm always asking God for wisdom for what I lead us into. Knowing that even when we walk in obedience, there's going to be times, and there have been times when I'm thinking... God, I did not see this coming. What are you doing? How many of you know God doesn't always answer those questions right away? It's in those moments where we think, and after we say that, we sit back and go, what was I thinking? And then we start, is there any way out of this mess that I have just created? One of the things I love about this particular passage is this account doesn't tell us what Jonathan was thinking in that moment. It doesn't list for us all of the countless reservations that he and his armor bearer undoubtedly went through are the endless second guessing that were racing through his mind. But it does briefly explain, he does briefly explain to his armor bearer that things could go terribly wrong in this when he said, if they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are. We cannot go up to them. And in, and in that admission is the understanding that if we are opening a door that God is not in, this could end badly. It could end badly. But we are going to stand and courageously do what the Lord has allowed us to do regardless. Because we trust God. One of the things that we have the advantage of is that we have seen the end of the story before we ever started it. Jonathan did not. He did not have the advantage of knowing what was going to happen. All he knew was that there was this moment of the exhilaration of God answering a prayer in a positive way that for most of us that have walked with God, we've known what it's like to have God answer a prayer. And we're looking at it going, the exhilaration of knowing that he's doing something. And Jonathan, when he heard the enemy yell down, yeah, you come, come on up here so that we can teach you a lesson. Instantly, he knew that the Lord was with them. But he had to get to that place before God would reveal himself to them. And I have to imagine that after he had told his armor-bearer that if they don't call us up, we're in deep trouble, that he had to have held his breath with uncertain tension at what could possibly happen. And this is where it's safe to say something about the Jonathans of our world. While everybody else was sleeping, Jonathan was engaged in the battle. While he was closest to death... He was in a very real way the only one who was truly alive in that very moment. He refused to sleep through this divine opportunity. His father, the king, was underneath a pomegranate tree and he said, No more. We are not going to just sit here and wait for defeat to happen. Come on. Let's go. Let's engage. Let's see if we can leave a mark. And I am convinced that if we will assume that same attitude that when we stand up and we face our fears, when the moment we do that, we look straight into the eyes of opportunity and the courage that we often need to engage our greatest challenge can only be found when you stand up and face it eye to eye in the middle of doing something and not just sitting there. There's a point as we seize these divine moments that a battle is going to begin. And it's at this impact where we experience conflict and opposition and resistance and begin to wonder if God is in it. But it is also at this point, this pact, this place of impact, where we see the greatest opportunity for God to step into our situation and say, I will take over here. Now I've got you right where I want you. I've led you here so that I can show you a great victory that you never could have done on your own. It's on this battlefield, behind the enemy lines, where we reflect God's heart and we stand in that place where God longs to make himself known. It's here, behind the enemy lines, that we provide God the opportunity to do through our lives what only an all-powerful God can do. And so the call is, if you want to make an impact, you have to quit hiding. And you have to get up. And you have to stand and let me do something. There's a story that we find in the Bible about Elijah... He was running from his, for his life from Jezebel. And it's hard to imagine that a man who had just prayed fire down from heaven was in fear from a second-hand threat. And yet, in one moment, Elijah is standing on Mount Carmel, and, and he stood face-to-face with 450 of prophets of the, the God named Baal and 400 prophets of the God named Asherah, and 850 of them were there, demonic warriors of this evil queen Jezebel. And he stood alone in that moment in time, and he opposed them. And he called the people of Israel to reject Jezebel's reign and follow the Lord God only. And he had challenged their prophets to a duel of fire. They built two altars. The prophets of Baal would pray to their gods, and Elijah would pray to his. And he said, whoever answers by fire is the real God, the real king. And then he called all the people to stand around as a witness, to witness this. And I want to read this passage to you. 1 Kings chapter 18 beginning with verse 25 one man standing in front of 850 prophets people watching elijah said to the prophets of baal choose one of the bulls and prepare it first since there are so many of you call on the name of your god but do not light the fire so they took the bull given them and prepared it then they called on the name of baal from morning till noon oh baal answer us they shouted but there was no response no one answered and then they danced around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. I, I, I just love to hesitate here. I love Christians with swagger. There's just... Elijah doesn't do this if he doesn't know the power of his God. One man, 850. They could have remedied his mouth very easily. But he begins to taunt them. I believe Elijah would have been a great football player. He begins to taunt them. Why don't you guys shout louder? Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's in deep thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping. must be awakened. I mean, he's just taunting them. And so they shouted louder, and they slashed themselves with swords and spears, and as was the custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come on over here. And so they came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. And he took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, of whom the word of the Lord came, saying, your name shall be Israel. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold to see as of seed, and he arranged the wood, cut the bowl into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering. Now, these large jars would be considered like small bathtubs. And then he said, do it again, and they did it again. And he said, do it a third time. He ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down the altar and even filled the trench. And at the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward. Now, remember, the prophets of Baal had been... Praying and singing and dancing and repeating for like nine hours. And Elijah steps forward with a one minute prayer. And he prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And I would imagine he didn't even have a chance to say, Amen before fire fell from heaven, whether it was a lightning bolt or whatever it was, it said, then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and licked up the water in the trench. In other words, this muddy place became a steaming hole. A steaming hole. So that nobody that was watching what was going to go on could ever for one minute sit back and say, God did not answer overwhelmingly. And what he was doing. And when all the people saw this. They fell on their face prostrate and cried. The Lord he is God. The Lord he is God. Now we see this. And we understand that out of this great victory. That you do not always live on the mountaintop. Even after great victories. But there are times that we struggle to go through things. Following this the unexpected happened. With Elijah at the pinnacle of his ministry. We find a man. Just days later, lying at the bottom of a spiritual gutter, his faith just in shatters. Because Jezebel had heard what had happened to her prophets, sent a messenger that threatened to kill him, and he was afraid, he ran for his life. And after wandering for a brief time in the desert and after struggling with suicidal thoughts, he found himself at a cave in Mount Horeb. And while he was hiding in the cave, God came to him. And he asked him an important question that I think he asks each of us. You find it in 1 Kings 19.9. He said, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? Elijah had had seized so many divine moments, but he had hit a wall and he was overwhelmed and he was exhausted and he felt he couldn't go on and God's solution was simple. He commanded Elijah to go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord for the Lord was about to pass by. And as God passed by there was a great and powerful wind that was followed by an earthquake quake which was followed by fire and Elijah explained that he was not in any of those God we find was only in the still small voice asking Elijah what are you doing here And here's what this means to us Whenever we run from challenges that God sets before us he asks us the same question what are you doing here Whenever we settle for a life of mediocrity, he asks us the question, what are you doing here? Whenever we decide that just living an average Christian life is good enough, he says, what are you doing here? When we settle for simply existing, God asks his church, what are you doing here? And the solution is to stop running and stop hiding from God and listen again to his voice And say, wherever you are, I want you to know God will find you, and that's not a threat. It is a promise, because it was in the presence of the Lord that Elijah was renewed. And we, oh church, have got to come to understand that in the middle of the difficult times of seizing divine moments, in the presence of the Lord, there's strength and renewal for God's people to be able to continue on. So don't be surprised if in your fear and in your weariness he challenges you to get up and to be strong and to open up the doors of opportunity that he has all around you and get up in church, make an impact, leave a mark because I, the Lord your God, am with you. Second Chronicles 16.9 He says, for the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. He's actively looking for those that are taking advantage of their moments, looking for opportunity, and said, I will strengthen you as you go, and I will empower you. So Jonathan moved with God, and God moved with Jonathan, and it may sound strange, but God joined Jonathan's efforts as he took advantage And seized a moment. And here's what you need to know. It wasn't that Jonathan changed God's mind. It was that Jonathan was determined in his life that he would be an expression of God's heart with everything he did. And he was not going to sit back and allow defeat to ruin him and ruin God's people. He said, let's get up and do something. And because he expressed the heart of God and all of that, God acted on his behalf. And the tables quickly turned and Jonathan and his armor bearer against a huge army saw God's purpose advance because they stepped into a moment and it turned into momentum and it changed the nation. The second thing that I want to end with today is his kingdom come. You know, when Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray, he instructed them to pray this word, these words, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Divine moments, divine opportunities that you stand up and say, I'm going to go and do this because I feel God is in it or he could be. It gives us an opportunity to express him. These divine moments usher in the kingdom of God and the presence of God into situations that you walk into because you are a carrier of the Holy Spirit. Because he dwells within you and empowers you and leads you. And discerningly, he leads you wherever you go and whatever you do, you're walking under the commission of a God who says that I will empower you and his kingdom comes to work through you wherever you go when you seize the divine moments. We may not think about it, but our actions illuminate what God is doing and divine moments create an opportunity for even more than that to happen. During this series these past several weeks, I've had several people come to me and and begin to share with me things that have happened as they have decided to step up and open doors and, and rather than finding reasons to say no to God, begin to find reasons to say yes to opportunities to come to see what might happen. I've asked Alex and Lesia Savage to come because I want them to share a testimony with you of what is happening that ultimately is going to have an impact on our church and the ministries that we are going to be entering into.
1: everyone. So this is our second time doing this today and I'm still nervous. <laughs> just like Pastor Pablo preached last Sunday. I have my notes just in case. Um, but we are here to share what God has been doing in our lives. Um, so we'll just go right to it. Um, I've had dreams or desires uh, to go on missions trips since I was a young girl, probably 15 years old. Um, And there were many opportunities to do that. However, I always told myself, um, probably out of fear and uncertainty, I always told myself, um, that's not the perfect timing. Uh, That's not the time yet for it. Uh, God will reveal to me when the perfect timing will happen. So last year, um, there was an opportunity to go to Ecuador and uh, Alex and I decided that we will go together and I was super excited to go on a missions trip with my husband and I thought that must be an opportunity. So we signed up. However, as soon as we signed up to go on the trip, um, I started questioning myself and telling myself, that's not the perfect timing. What am I doing? I have little children. Uh, Who are they gonna be with when I go to a different country? Uh, And I battled with that for a few months. Um, I always prayed for God to bless the trip, um, but I still kept on doubting that it's not the perfect timing for me to go. Uh, So in July of last summer, I had an opportunity to spend a week with a friend of mine in Salt Lake City, Utah, and uh, we were there for like a little work trip. Um, And uh, every single opportunity that she had, uh, she kept on witnessing to all the young Mormon kids. And I told her, I said, Vera, uh, that's not a perfect timing for you to do that. We're not here for this. And she told me, she said, uh, and I asked her actually, how come you're so bold to come up to them and tell them that? And she said to me, she said, I had uh, too many people in my life who needed to hear about Jesus, but they are no longer with us, and I never told them about Jesus because I was looking for the perfect opportunity, and I just didn't tell them about God. So she said, now I don't want to waste any time. If I see a person that I know that needs to know the truth about Jesus, I'm going to tell them. So uh, after this conversation with her... Uh, I felt this um, sort of like boldness in me that, you know, I don't have to be looking for a perfect opportunity to go to Ecuador. Um, So I started praying differently uh, about our trip. Uh, But I'm not going to lie, even on the plane to Ecuador, on the bus, when we were driving to the jungle, I kept on asking myself loudly and asking people around me, what am I doing here? Am I crazy? Uh, Like, my kids are at home and I'm here. I mean, like, what have I done? (laughs) There's no going back now. And actually, when we just signed up and got the tickets already, I asked Alex if there will be uh, an opportunity or a chance for me to return the tickets if I need to. (laughs) So um, I still kept on asking myself these questions even in Ecuador. But I believe it was our second evening in Ecuador. Uh, There was a couple, um, Cindy and Walt, Uh, They were taking care of us, pretty much. Cindy was cooking yummy food, and Walt was helping um, with the construction. So they uh, shared their testimony, how they became uh, missionaries. So um, back when Walt was younger in his church, a man came up to him. And he said to him, listen, there's a missions trip opportunity. It was like a construction missions trip. And he said, "Uh, go home and pray if it's God's will for you to go on that trip. And well said to him, listen, I don't have to pray for God's will because he said, I believe that when Jesus said go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone, uh, he said, I believe that this was meant for everyone. This was God's will for everyone. Um, And he said, I just need to pray if I'm willing to go because God's will for me to go. I just need to be willing to go. After he said these words, uh, I stopped uh, questioning and asking myself, what am I doing here? I feel like God opened up my eyes in a different way. Uh, I started seeing how much need there is around us in Ecuador. Um, God started sending all these ideas into my head, um, what could be done, what we can bring and help those people of Ecuador. Um, And uh, I actually kept on telling everyone I'm in love with Ecuador people. I kept on telling them that I will be back. Um, But, you know, when we were even on a plane, I kind of felt like, yeah, I'll I'll be back in a few years, 10 years or so when kids get older. Um, But God thinks differently. So I'll give the microphone to Alex, and he'll tell you the rest.
2: Hello. So um, I'm going to tell you about uh, part two uh, of what uh, God has been doing since the trip. And... um, We came home. We needed a nice week of uh, relaxation, and we definitely took it on a camping trip. Um, And um, we just went about our lives, obviously, you know, just doing what we needed to do. And uh, I think it was three or four weeks after the trip, um, a uh, physician that I had just met, um, affiliated with Le Moyne College, um, and uh, she came up to me and said, Hey, look, um, there's um, a uh, clinic that I'm closing, and I would like to um, ask you if you know anybody who'd be willing into gr- uh, grabbing the supplies and everything in the clinic, essentially, um, and uh, just to kind of give it into good hands and go from there. Um, and um, then she asked me, and she's like, um, I mean, it, would you be interested in any of it? I don't know if you're taking any trips in the future. Um, is this something that you would consider looking at? And I said, are you serious? Um, and so um, she's like, yeah, yeah, come over. You have first dibs. So we went, I went to her clinic. Um, she's like, everything and anything could be yours. Um, and I'm like, geez, how much do I take? You know, like, do I just take, you know, a little bit? You know, take, you know. So I was like, okay, I'll, I chose, chose my things, and she made a mental note of what we were going to take. Um, and so um, uh, two trucks in, um, I'm like, do I take all of it? Um, and so um, four-and-a-half trucks in, I did take all of it. Um, but there was a moment um, during that time period where I was thinking of, what am I doing with this? Um, I have no plans. Um, I have no vision of what I'm doing with this. Um, we had thought about going back, but we didn't have anything. And going even further back even before the trip you know one of the things that God really taught me was that I could trust God in all and everything Um, that all of the supplies that you guys already heard everything that we had um, intended to buy everything that we wanted to buy um, was completely covered Um, and um, it was a lot of money it was a big investment but God had taught me during that process that he's got everything covered and so when this opportunity came to, to grab an entire clinic um, by the way um, I am a physician assistant and my wife's a medical assistant, so we're just not like grabbing a clinic here um, <laughs> so um, It's something that um, when the opportunity came um, We knew that God could potentially do something phenomenal with this and um, What I wanted to share with you guys um, is um, that was something that's been said before um, in this Seize the Moment um, series that uh, Pastor Doug and Pastor Pablo have shared with us uh, is that between faith and hope, there is risk. And um, another thing that really stood out to me in, in a movie that I saw many, many years ago, um, and it's called The Last Flight Out. Um, and um, this is a quote um, that one missionary there who um, and the movie ends up dying, but this is what they said before they died. They said, there is no better place to be than in the center of God's will unless it's in his presence. Um, this resonated with me so much that I even sh- shared it in Haiti in one of my devotionals. Um, and it's always been with me. And w- looking back at what God has done so far um, from the Ecuador trip, there's been no better feeling. There's been no better um, I don't even know how to describe it. Um, It's just—it's just been phenomenal to see what God is doing, and to see what God, and to just anticipate what God will do in the future. Um, And and it's just—you know—it's so amazing that even between the services, God is doing some phenomenal things already. Um, And um, and this I'll lead into into saying that um, we are planning the next trip um, to Ecuador, Um, and that trip is. tentatively planned for uh, June 27th Um, so this is going to be a 100% medical mission oriented um, trip as of right now Um, and um, what we're looking for um, or who we are looking for I should say um, is two or three uh, medical providers uh, whether it be you know physicians uh, MPs PAs um, we're going to look also have uh, at least two or three medical assistants RNs uh, nurses aides uh, we definitely need pharmacy techs, pharmacists, and, um, and a couple interpreters if, um, that, if that's something that we would have to provide for um, the, uh, the providers or the pharmacists at the end. Um, and then, this is the new and developing news, uh, we are looking for um, a dentist. Uh, dental assistant or a dental hygienist now uh, because um, God is so good and he knows what he's doing even when I don't, I can't even imagine it. Um, so um, so the team is growing, the team is already being um, built, um, probably more than I can um, imagine right now, um, but um, it's something that's very exciting to see how God is using all of us to um, to seize the moment. There's an opportunity that God has given to us, um, and we encourage you to do the same. Um, Thank you for your time.
0: When Alex and Lesia came into my office and shared with me that they had just taken a clinic and that it was all in their basement, and he was saying, we seized a moment, but we don't know what's going on. The next week, I was at the church where my son is a pastor at, and uh, had the opportunity of dedicating my my grandson. And at the end of that service, I had a man who is in charge of the construction for much of what goes on in our in our New York area, uh, who came up to me and he says, "You don't you don't happen to know any churches that are doing like medical trips to you?" Uh, he says, "Because we have medical people here that want to participate but want to go on a trip where their skills would be used." Uh, And I said, I'll have an answer for you by next week. Uh, I had an opportunity to speak to our our network superintendent, Dr. Dwayne Durst, that week and and said, hey, I just want to share with you some things that are happening and, and ask if you would mind if Grace Assembly could be the hub for our network to develop medical missions trips for New York. Uh, and uh, he graciously said that he felt we had the capabilities of of leading things like that. So, folks, we're seizing a divine moment. Uh, When God starts giving you clinics, the interesting thing about that is that I believe that God is waiting for every one of you to step into a moment so that he can show you that he's got, it may not be a clinic or clinics, but it will be something that God is preparing us to step into because our time is short to leave a mark. And I want Grace Assembly to leave a mark. I want us to fulfill all that God has for us. And so our, our vision statement is locally to globally, pursuing every heart with the love of Jesus. So you've just heard that globally we are about to enter into some medical missions. But I want you to look on this stage because this is Local. This is local today. And we're going to conclude this service today by praying a thanksgiving prayer over this.